Welcome to the Mama Stay Fit podcast. In this episode, we will be discussing VBAC or vaginal birth after cesarean. We will be discussing what is a VBAC, things to consider when preparing for one, possible barriers and obstacles you may encounter, and how to decide between a VBAC or a repeat C-section. Welcome to the Mama Safe Fit Podcast. This is Gina, perinatal fitness trainer and birth doula. And this is Roxanne, labor and delivery nurse and student midwife. And this is the Mama Safe Fit Podcast, where we empower you on your prenatal fitness, birth, and postpartum return to fitness journey. Our podcast shares how to move throughout your pregnancy to stay strong and comfortable. Pain is not a requirement of pregnancy. Understand the science of birth and how to approach recovery after birth. We share our personal experiences as mothers navigating the stage of lives, plus our professional expertise as birth workers and fitness professionals. Our goal is to help you feel confident as you navigate the perinatal timeframe for an empowering pregnancy, positive birth, and postpartum journey. We are glad to have you with us on this journey and that you've chosen us to support you. Welcome to the Mama Sifid podcast. In this episode, we're going to be breaking down feedback, which for 30% of people who have given birth, this could be an option they are considering. Currently in the United States, the C-section rate is around 30%, and of that 30%, a large majority are great candidates for a vaginal birth after C-section if that is their choice. Now, as always, we are supportive of whatever you decide is best for you and your family. If you want to have a VBAC or a repeat C-section, that is for you to decide, and we support you in that choice. But if you feel unsure on which choice or are looking for more information, we are here to help provide that for you as well. So Roxanne, what is a VBAC, and then what is a TOLAC? Because those are two words that someone might hear. So a VBAC is a vaginal birth after C-section. So you've had a cesarean birth, and then in subsequent pregnancies, you then have a vaginal birth. During your one pregnancy where you had the C-section, and then the next pregnancy, you're going for a vaginal birth. They call you a TOLAC during labor, which stands for a trial of labor after cesarean. It is not like a super friendly term that a lot of people use, but in a hospital when you've not had that vaginal birth after that cesarean, that's what they'll usually say if someone is in the hospital for that. They'll be like, oh, in room, whatever, she's a TOLAC. So we're all aware of the risk factors. So typically when someone is wanting to have a vaginal birth after C-section, they're just referred to as a VBAC. But again, as Roxanne said, in a hospital setting, you may hear the word TOLAC, which again is not a super like positive sounding word, like you're trying to have a vaginal birth. It doesn't sound very like optimistic. So most of the time you're going to be referred to as a VBAC because everybody likes to put labels on you as you navigate your pregnancy. And so there are some things that may make you a good candidate to be a VBAC and other things that may make you a better candidate for a repeat C-section. The first is going to be your personal preference. But Roxanne, what are some things that would make somebody a good candidate for a VBAC? So a good candidate for VBAC is literally anybody who wants to VBAC. The only contraindication for someone that potentially may not be able to VBAC is if you've had an incision into the myometrium, which is like the main body part of your uterus. So if you've had a previous classical incision on your uterus or potentially fibroid removals in that myomectomy, meaty body part of your uterus, this just has a increased risk of uterine rupture because the part of the uterus that does most of the contracting is that main body. Where we do C-sections now is in that lower uterine segment that does not do a lot of contracting. So the risk of uterine rupture is a lot lower in those cases, and that's why they can be back. When counseling for a VBAC, your provider will normally use the VBAC calculator. So it incorporates a bunch of different things and calculates a percentage of a likelihood of having a successful VBAC. 
It incorporates your age, your height, your weight that then is calculated into your body mass index, your obstetric history to see like, do you have you had a previous VBAC? Have you had any vaginal deliveries or no previous vaginal deliveries? So what was the reason for your C-section? Was it due to labor not progressing or potentially did you never even labor? You had a scheduled C-section for potentially placenta previa or breach. Uh, so what was the reason? And then did you have any chronic hypertension with your current pregnancy or previous pregnancies as well? And then it comes up with a percentage. And based off this percentage, your provider will counsel you on the risks and benefits of VBAC. And with that percentage, you are still the one making the decision on whether or not you would like to VBAC using this percentage as a tool. It is not to say like, oh, if your percentage is less than 70%, you can't VBAC because we're all individual people. This is just a tool to use to help make that decision of whether or not you would want to. If your provider ever uses this tool as a way to be like, nope, you can't have one because you don't have a high percentage, then probably finding a more supportive provider would be better in that situation to set you up to have a VBAC rather than knowing that this provider is not very supportive. So the VBAC calculator is a counseling tool that your provider may use, but it's just based on like a large body of research that is not based on you as an individual. So your individual experience and opportunity to try is way more important if that's the opportunity that you want. And so things that were probably more important as you prepare for a VBAC is one, to have a supportive provider who like truly believes in your ability to have a vaginal birth and wants you to have a vaginal birth too. So having a provider that is supportive and not tolerant is going to be incredibly important. And so sometimes with my VBAC doula clients, they'll have a provider that appears to be supportive throughout their pregnancy. And then towards the end, they kind of do this like bait and switch where suddenly they're putting all of these restrictions on them. Okay, well, you have to go into labor by this date. Otherwise, we're going to schedule a C-section. Or if you don't go into labor by this point, we're going to do an induction because your baby's going to get too big. And they start planting all these seeds of doubt and start giving all this like permission to do things where you're not allowed to unless I say it's okay. So having a provider that is going to give you the opportunity to try is really important. And so the provider and the birth location are both going to be really important as you prepare for a vaginal birth. So other things that are really important to preparing for a VBAC is birth processing of your prior birth experiences. Are you holding on to anything from those births that are making you want this to be like your redemption shot? Or how are you approaching this pregnancy? And so for some of my VBAC clients, they'll have this like laundry list of things that they're going to do because they failed at something in a previous pregnancy and that's why they had their C-section. So they're going to eat all of the foods. They're going to work out four times a day. They're going to go for 18 walks. They're going to take all these supplements. They're going to do all these things to guarantee them that vaginal birth because that C-section was their fault. They did something wrong, and that's why they had that C-section. And so if that's the approach that you're going with, we're already at a point where we probably need to take a step back and kind of process our births to understand, like, why do I have these feelings? What sort of, like, things do I need to release so that I could approach this pregnancy and this birth with, like, an open heart and with, as a new experience as opposed to a redemption shot? So, Casey, was there anything that you did when you were preparing for your second pregnancy and your second birth where you were wanting to have a feedback in regards to processing your prior birth or was it just your redemption shot all the way through? I wish I could say that it was a little bit more a processed birth that I processed the first and, and took a clean slate approach to the second. But I didn't really have that realization until after the second that um, that somehow my 
second birth was representative of like redeeming things that felt like they went wrong the first time. So there really wasn't much processing. What I ended up doing was leaning into information. And that's just kind of my coping strategy for things was, you know, I never learned about C-section the first time around because I didn't believe that that was the way that I would birth. And so the second time around, I obviously had the understanding of the C-section, but I leaned into the knowledge of what it would take to have a VBAC. And I leaned into some of the guidance of like what made VBACs more successful and what were some things that I could do. Everything from like pharmaceutical protocols, taking a baby aspirin, to increasing exercise, volume, and intensity to try to have the healthiest placenta possible so that there would reduce the risk of preeclampsia. So I wouldn't say that I did mental and emotional processing of the first birth. I just tried to confidently move forward with the idea that I just felt like I needed to try. And so I was committed through the pregnancy and, and right up until labor that it was important to me to try. So another thing that can be important when preparing for a VBAC is understanding your prior birth history. Why did you have a cesarean birth? And are there ways that we can mitigate those factors? So if your prior cesarean was due to health complications, such as developing preeclampsia, is there anything that you could do during this pregnancy to try to reduce some of those risk factors? So sometimes doing aerobic activity could reduce your risk throughout pregnancy, sometimes like certain baby aspirin protocols, maybe a specific diet. And so is there anything that you can do to feel empowered as you are navigating this pregnancy to reduce your risk of developing a similar complication? If your cesarean birth was due to like baby's position or maybe there was like a stall in your labor, like baby wasn't moving deeper into the pelvis, could we increase the amount of movement that we were doing during this pregnancy to ensure that we have good movement capability throughout the pelvis? Can we release the pelvic floor? Maybe working with a pelvic floor physical therapist throughout your pregnancy could be beneficial to help with some of those movement restrictions that you may be having. If it was due to like baby not descending or rotating through the pelvis, potentially looking at hiring a doula that can help you with those labor positions during your birth, especially if you get an epidural, can be another thing that we can do to help mitigate some of the issues that we had in a previous birth. So as you're approaching your pregnancy in your birth and you're creating your list of things that you would like to do to mitigate risk factors, to help you feel more empowered, maybe you've learned a few new things from your prior birth to your current preparation to where you want to implement those things to enhance your experience, we want to ensure that when we're doing it, it's making us, one, feel more empowered and in more control with our experience, but also relieving stress. So by doing my workouts and doing certain protocols, it's making me feel less anxious about my birth preparation. If it's making you more anxious, like, oh my God, I missed a workout or I ate a cheeseburger, like, and now I'm doomed, like, we maybe want to decrease the amount of things on our list. And so that's usually my biggest advice to my VBAC clients is when they have these really, really long lists of things that they're going to do because is if they have this really long list of to-do, like, I must do all these things in order to have this specific type of birth experience, is to assess them whether or not that list of things is making them more anxious or it's making them feel more confident about their birth, and then not tying that list to a specific outcome. So if I do all of these things, I will be successful, which means I'll have a vaginal birth. But rather, if I do all of these things, I will be successful because I'm going to feel good about my birth experience, regardless if I have a vaginal birth or a C-section. So don't tie your list to a specific mode of delivery. 
rather tie it to a specific feeling that you want for your birth. And hopefully that feeling is feeling very positive about your birth experience and feeling very empowered in your birth experience, regardless if it's a vaginal birth or if a cesarean birth. One thing I think it's important to remember, at least from my perspective, we are have completed our family, so there won't be any more births for me. And it's this perspective of like, man, sometimes I just think, like, I know so much more now than I did five years ago or four years ago when I gave birth. And I think it's important to know we're always going to learn more. The science is going to change. We are going to evolve. At some point, we can't just keep having kids to redeem previous births or to apply new knowledge. And so I think that is something, especially if you have performance type mindset or performative mindset or perfectionist or any other name that you want to call it by, is that we're never going to probably get it all right. And we're never going to know everything that there is to know at some point that we start to let good enough be good enough or let it good enough be enough and allow ourselves to have peace in our preparation and allow ourselves to just feel peaceful that we did our best and we did our best with what we knew at the time. And the likelihood of us knowing more down the road is, is totally there, but we do the best with what we know now. Let's take a break from this week's episode to share about one of our sponsors, Needed. I always stress the importance of a quality prenatal on top of a healthy diet and lifestyle. I found, however, that there are trade-offs with even the better prenatal options out there. That's why I'm especially excited to introduce you to Needed, a nutrition company focused on optimal nourishment for moms. Needed offers the most comprehensive prenatal multi on the market with the best nutrient forms and dosages to help you thrive, not just survive. Not only is it nutritionally complete, but it also comes in three options, a powder, capsules, or essentials. The powder is especially awesome in smoothies and for those that hate taking pills. Needed hand-selected every ingredient and nutrient dose, including spending thousands of hours reviewing supplier sourcing records, clinical literature, and the in-practice clinical data of practitioners. That last point is really important, as there are many gaps in women's health research. Needed's real-time expert clinical perspective is really unique. Get started today and save 20% off at checkout with code MAMASTAYPOD. Visit thisisneeded.com. From a physical standpoint, things that we can do to prepare for vaginal birth after C-section is one can be scar mobilization. So your C-section scar can play a big role in not only your overall function, but also that C-section scar is on your uterus. And if there's a lot of adhesions there, it could also potentially affect baby's position. It can affect like your bladder function. It can affect like your pelvic positioning. So there's a lot of things that your scar can play a role in in subsequent pregnancies and births. And so Casey, can you talk more on the importance of scar mobilization when preparing for not only just general function, but preparing for a vaginal birth after C-section? The main thing that we focus on addressing in the scar mobilization course is adhesions and kind of what are they and how do they impact us. And so the presence of adhesions are just connective tissue connections between various tissues that would otherwise not be connected. So your bladder is not normally scarred to your uterus or your layers of your core muscles are not usually stuck together. They have a fascial or connective tissue layer and they usually glide separately and move independently of one another. So by releasing adhesions through scar mobilization, we can allow the expansion of our tissues to accommodate not only the pregnancy, but then all the expanding tissues that come along with that so that the uterus can expand because it's not stuck to other tissues deep in our organs or that our abdomen, our skin, our fat, our fascia 
and musculature is more willing to expand as it would in your initial pregnancy prior to that cesarean birth. So working on those tissues so that they can accommodate the expansion that they will be called to accommodate. And then also with a VBAC, you're hoping to get to the stage where you're having some significant uterine contractions. And so any kind of adhesions that we can release in the viscera or the uterus and organs themselves will allow that uterus to contract more effectively to generate force that will help to push baby out. And so pretty big impact on um, scar mobilization can have on the back outcome. Another aspect of physical preparation is, especially if you had a cesarean birth due to labor pausing or there's a stall within your labor, like baby just wasn't rotating anymore or baby wasn't descending any further into the pelvis, is during pregnancy, we can also emphasize internal rotation of the femur onto the pelvis. And so sometimes we have these late labor stalls where let's say maybe you were stuck at eight centimeters for a really long time or you pushed for like four hours and baby just was not finishing their rotation under the pubic bone. It could be that there was less movement capability with the bottom half of the pelvis, which is going to open more with internal rotation. So think knees in, ankles out, or knees moving towards midline as the ankle is moving further away. That is going to create more space in the bottom half of the pelvis, so lower mid-pelvis, pelvic outlet. If we have difficulty finding internal rotation, it could decrease space in the bottom of the pelvis and make it harder for baby to descend and rotate through that space. So during our prenatal workouts, we could emphasize finding internal rotation. And the things that are going to help to support finding that internal rotation is, one, we need the hamstrings and adductors to be turning on to pull that pelvis more posteriorly or more backwards, which is also going to help pull the pelvis into internal rotation as well. In addition, we need to release the muscles on the opposite side that are pulling that pelvis into more extension. So this is also where that scar mobilization is going to be helpful because if there's adhesions in the lower abdomen, it's going to kind of be pulling the pelvis forward. So you're going to come into a more arched position. And so we can do the scar mobilization to release those adhesions or that stickiness. We can release the hip flexors and quads that are pulling that pelvis forward. We can release in the lats and the back musculature that's kind of pulling the back half of the pelvis up. So it's creating that arched position, which are also common postural tendencies during pregnancy, but can be more so if you have any sort of adhesions in your lower abdomen. It's kind of pulling you into this extended position. So during pregnancy, we can focus on releasing the lats, the hip flexors, and quads to help bring that pelvis into a more neutral position and then find that more tucked position. So that more of that posterior pelvic tilt, which can have a big influence on whether or not baby can enter into the pelvis. So if your prior C-section was baby never engaged or never entered into the pelvis, really emphasizing finding a posterior pelvic tilt can be really important because that posterior pelvic tilt is moving the back half of the pelvis further back. So you have a junction between your lumbar spine or your lower spine and your sacrum that kind of pushes forward and decreases the pelvic diameter of the inlet. And so when we have that posterior pelvic tilt, that sacral promontory moves backwards, increases space front to back in the inlet, which could help baby enter into the pelvis. And then as baby navigates and rotates through, we need more internal rotation, continuing with that posterior pelvic tilt because that makes it easier to find internal rotation to create more space in the bottom half of the pelvis. And so in episode three, we talk about different movements that you can do during pregnancy to prepare for birth, which really emphasizes a lot of that internal rotation work. And so we can do it with step-ups, we can do it with lunges, any sort of single leg movement. We can think, bring the opposite hip towards that opposite knee. 
And in the show notes, we'll link blogs that have videos. And then this podcast will also have a transcript with a blog that I have a bunch of videos as well on like what internal rotation even looks like and how to incorporate that within your prenatal fitness programs. And so the physical things that we can do to kind of prepare for a vaginal birth after C-section is one, that scar mobilization is going to play a huge role in not only your overall function, but the effectiveness of your uterus during labor. And then preparing to open the pelvis with internal rotation and finding more of that posterior pelvic tilt can be two specific movement patterns that I would say, if anything else, or if you only focus on two things, would be ensuring that you can find those two movement patterns are going to help to create more space in the bottom half of the pelvis where we tend to see more of those labor stalls. As you're preparing for a VBAC, you may encounter some obstacles. And so Roxanne, can we talk about some obstacles that someone may encounter when preparing for a vaginal birth after C-section? So some obstacles with a provider is that the type of provider in the birth location you're looking for. So some providers can't do home births for VBACs. In some states, it is legal. But for North Carolina, a CNM, so a certified nurse midwife, cannot attend a VBAC birth, but potentially other midwives could in that state. So the provider that you choose could be limited. And then usually in a hospital setting, they do require continuous fetal monitoring, mostly for like everybody can kind of has to have continuous fetal monitoring in a way, but especially for a higher risk pregnancy of VBAC because there is that risk of uterine rupture. And they say by having continuous fetal monitoring, they can see the startings of a potential uterine rupture if you are continuously monitored. But this goes to the point where some providers may even want only internal monitors regardless. Uh, So like you would show up in labor and then they would break your bag of water to place internal monitors as a requirement. And this may not be something that you're wanting. So that provider is not somebody that you're going to want. With monitors, it can be important to understand what options are available for you in your birth location as well. So some hospitals only have wired monitors that are attached to a stationary machine, so this can reduce your freedom of movement, while others may have portable monitors that are still wired, but it's like a little purse that you carry around, or even like Bluetooth or wireless monitors, which would give you all sorts of freedom of movement. And then ensuring that those monitors also are waterproof can be really helpful, especially if you want to use like the shower or the tub as your laboring methods. But with continuous monitoring, also knowing what is their policy. So their policy could be like if you are a VBAC being continuously monitored, you're not allowed to get out of the bed. That could be a helpful thing, too. Some providers may not allow you to move during labor if you are a VBAC. Some providers may push induction sooner. So like they might be like, oh, well, you're 39 weeks. You haven't gone into labor. This could be a limitation on like the time that you have to go into spontaneous labor on your own. And they either will push an induction at 39, 40 weeks or start to push a C-section because like who like everyone obviously has their babies before 39 weeks. So like if you don't have your baby by then, that's like a very logical timeline to start pushing. And then limitations with induction. So let's say that you are a VBAC and you do have to be induced for some sort of medical reason. You do have limitations on the induction options available to you because you've had that prior C-section. So cervical ripening agents have a higher likelihood of leading to uterine rupture. So they are not used during VBAC inductions. So that does limit. And that is like a really beneficial portion of induction, especially if your cervix is really thick. That could prolong the process with inductions. Some providers will seem very supportive at the beginning part of your pregnancy. And then as you get closer and closer and closer to your due date, they start implementing more and more limitations into your care. 
So they could have been like, yeah, you're going to be able to move during your entire pregnancy. Like, oh, you may not even need to do continuous fetal monitoring or like, I don't even I don't want internal monitors on everybody. Like, I just need baby on the monitor. That's fine. Like, I'll let you be pregnant until 41 weeks. That's totally fine. And then as you get closer and closer to 39 weeks, they start to be like, oh, no, I've never said that. Like, I want internal monitors on everybody. Like, when you show up, I'm going to break your water so that I could put that internal monitor on. Or, like, as you get closer, they're like, oh, like, maybe we should think about scheduling that induction sooner rather than later. These are things where they do that almost bait and switch where, like, they're really supportive, but they're not actually supportive of that situation. And, like, they're almost being putting more importance on the risks associated with the VBAC and not really discussing any of the risks associated with the C-section because that is major abdominal surgery. It doesn't come with zero risks associated with it, um, just like VBAC doesn't have zero risks associated with it. So they put more focus on the risk associated with one birth method versus the other one, which kind of makes it a little bit of bias associated with it. So when it comes to like the overemphasis on risks of VBAC, which is typically this emphasis on uterine rupture, but no conversation on the risks of having a cesarean birth, the reason is probably that there's less predictability and control over a vaginal birth. There's no set timeline on like when your uterus is going to start contracting. There's no set timeline on how fast or slow your cervix is going to dilate. We have baby that's playing a big role. So there's a lot more factors involved with the progress of a vaginal birth while a scheduled C-section is like much easier to control. There's less factors involved with when is the baby going to come out of your body. And so that could be why there's an overemphasis on the risks of VBAC because there's less control for the provider in that time. And so ways that you can figure out whether or not your provider is going to be tolerant of you having a VBAC or if they're going to be truly supportive is you can, one, talk to other people who have had VBACs with that provider or with that clinic or in that hospital setting. You can talk to local doulas. You can talk to local professionals that have experience in those hospitals and ask them for their opinion on who they think is going to be the most supportive of a VBAC. Because I know for me, like, I know which providers are going to be really supportive of a VBAC and which ones we're going to have more resistance with. And whether or not you choose to give birth in that birth location or not is really up to you. Like, you're just gathering information to help you make a good decision. Like, you don't have to wait until you're 39 weeks to figure out that your provider was actually tolerant when there's resources out there to help you kind of figure this out much earlier. So uterine rupture is used to potentially coerce you to choose a C-section, and certain verbiage may be used when talking about uterine rupture to instill fear. And so the actual risk of uterine rupture can vary from which study you look at, and it's anywhere from like 0.4% to less than 1% chance. And this could include both like a rupture where like it's a hole through your uterus, or it could include like a dehiscence, which is just like a window. So not every layer of the uterus has been broken through yet. And so the risk of rupture may actually be even lower than that with a scarred uterus. Now, this does increase slightly with multiple C-sections, and it could increase depending on the type of incision that you had with your prior C-sections and if you had Pitocin, cervical ripening agents. But there's still a risk for uterine rupture even with an unscarred uterus. So if you've never had a C-section before, there's still a really small risk that your uterus can rupture with that as well. And so the risk of uterine rupture exists, but it's still very, very low. 
And so this overemphasis on the risk of uterine rupture to dissuade people from attempting to have a vaginal birth after C-section is not very helpful. And so be mindful of the type of language that you may hear in regards to uterine rupture. So double the risk, like so much higher risk, because those may not be accurate for one current research and then also your personal experience. And then the other side where they're talking a lot about the risk associated with feedback for like uterine rupture, but a lot of the time they're not going to tell you of the risk associated with having subsequent C-sections because, again, C-sections don't come with zero risk. They're, it's not like, oh, you just have a C-section and things are fine. There are risks associated with every subsequent C-section that you have. So the question really is like, how many kids are you wanting? Do you plan on having subsequent pregnancies because this decision to have a repeat C-section could dissuade you knowing that your risk of placenta previa increases every time you have a C-section, your risk of placenta accreta, where your placenta can embed deep into the uterine wall that could lead to having potentially needing an emergency hysterectomy after birth or having to just have your uterus removed after birth because they can't remove that placenta increases with every C-section. So like there are risks associated with both sides and ensuring that you understand both sides of the story can be really helpful to decide which one you would like. If you are only planning on having one more baby, maybe that repeat C-section could be the right route for you. If you're planning on having like eight children or trying for eight children, having eight C-sections is a lot of C-sections. So potentially the VBAC is the better route. And so when it comes to choosing, do you want to have a VBAC or do you want to have a repeat C-section, either option is totally valid. Like there is a big emphasis on VBAC is the way that everyone should go. But know that it's OK if you decide that you want to have a repeat C-section. I've had plenty of friends and clients who choose the repeat C-section because it felt like that's what gave them the most control over their situation. And they felt most at peace with choosing to have a repeat C-section as opposed to trying for a vaginal birth. And so, Casey, can you talk about what made you decide or what were what was kind of your thought process in making the decision for yourself? For me, the choice was that I wanted to try. I wanted to give my body the loudest voice in the outcome of birthing the baby. And that was something I felt like I was missing out on in the first pregnancy that ended in C-section was like, it was an induction and my body never really, you know, fully got on board with the induction. And so I kind of was missing that feeling of, I guess, just that primal feeling of the body taking over and being really powerful in, or what I perceived would be, you know, this kind of natural primal type thing. And so it's like, I really, really want to have just a version of that where if my body gets stuck, I'm fine with offering help. Or if, you know, there's a situation that becomes unsafe, I'm perfectly fine with offering help, but I really, really want to try. And so in that case, TOLAC was actually appealing more so than it felt negative at the time because it was like, hey, we can just try. There was no stipulations put on me in terms of, well, if you say that you want a VBAC, then we're not going to allow you to have a C-section. Like, you always have the option if that's what becomes the safest choice or if that becomes your preference um, in the moment. So I felt pretty safe by, you know, having the option. But again, just just knowing that I tried, I think, was really, really a key piece for me, even though my second birth ended in another cesarean. I think I would have been left with some wonder if I hadn't navigated that 
Um, and also my research led me to some of the benefits of uh, TOLAC, that benefits of the trial of labor on both mom and baby and that the uterine contractions and so many other things in the cascade of labor, how much that can help mom and baby. So those are kind of the biggest factors for me. And so when it comes to making that decision for you, we can still use that acronym BRAIN. So what are the benefits of each option? What's the benefits of having a VBAC versus having a repeat C-section? What are the risks associated with both? So not just the risk of VBAC, what are the risks associated with C-section as well? And which of those risks do you feel most confident taking on or that you feel that the benefits significantly outweigh? We can look at alternatives. Okay, the alternative for each of those is going to be the opposite. So the alternative for a VBAC is going to be a repeat C-section and vice versa. What is your intuition telling you? Do you have a gut feeling telling you which route you should go? And do you feel confident in the decision that you're making? Do you feel confident that you have enough information to want to choose VBAC versus wanting to choose repeat C-section? Do you feel like there's a lot of fear being instilled in you based on language that's being used? Do you feel pressured going in either direction? If so, like let's come back and just kind of tune into our gut and see what is our intuition telling us in which way is it trying to guide us. And the last thing is going to be nothing, which we we can't do nothing. If your baby has to come out of your body at some point. Um, so that would not necessarily be a great option with that acronym brain. But we don't necessarily need to make a decision as soon as you pee on a stick. We can take more time to make the decision. You have nine months to make a decision, and we want you to feel confident in choosing the decision that feels best for you, that feels like the best route for you to meet your baby. So if you've had a cesarean birth, you have the option to have a trial of labor after C-section or a vaginal birth after C-section known as VBAC. When preparing for a VBAC, probably the most important thing is going to be choosing your provider and birth location and ensuring that the provider is supportive and wants you to have a vaginal birth as much as you do. If you have a provider that is more tolerant or going to quote unquote let you do things, you may find that there are a lot of obstacles at the end of your pregnancy, which could affect kind of your mental approach or your emotional approach to your birth. If you've had a prior cesarean birth or any sort of other prior birth that you're potentially holding on to things from, doing some birth processing can be really helpful to allow you to come to this new pregnancy and to this new birth with an open heart and with an open mind. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't do things to try to enhance your experience, but we want to approach it from a point of empowerment and helping build your confidence as opposed to a redemption shot or I got everything wrong last time, so I'm going to do better this time. Like, we want to come to it with, hey, I've learned some new things. Let me instill those new things in my approach so that I can feel more confident as I approach the journey to meet my baby. So as we come with our list of things that we're doing during our pregnancy to help us prepare to meet our baby, understanding how we're defining success. Is success vaginal birth or is success I feel good about the way that I met my baby and I feel good about how I approached it, regardless if I had a vaginal birth or a cesarean birth. Physical things that we can do during pregnancy to help prepare for a vaginal birth is going to be one, scrum mobilization, because that can really affect not only our function, but also how our uterus can work during labor, in addition to preparing to open the pelvis. So can we find more of that internal rotation of the femur on the pelvis and more of that posterior pelvic tilt, which are two movement patterns that tend to be more challenging to find during pregnancy and could be culprits to a labor stall. Some obstacles that you may encounter while preparing for a vaginal birth after C-section is going to be limitations by the provider. So maybe you're limited on who your provider can be or where you can give birth 
or there's limitations on options available to you. So maybe you have to be continuously monitored. What do those monitors look like? What is the hospital policy on monitoring for a VBAC? Do you have any limitations with your induction options? Is your provider going to push induction on you? Is that going to be an expectation of you at a certain point at the end of your pregnancy? And so when we're trying to decide on who we want to support our birth, tune into your local resources and ask them for their opinions from their experiences, both from other local moms and also birth professionals. When we approach preparing for a VBAC, it's important that we have a provider that is not only emphasizing the risk of uterine rupture or the risk of VBAC, but also helping us to understand the risk of a C-section so that we can make an informed decision that's not from a place of fear. We hope that this podcast episode gives you a starting point to navigate your pregnancy after C-section. Thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode. If you want more support throughout your pregnancy, join our prenatal fitness programs in childbirth education course. If you need more support after birth, join our postpartum fitness programs and education courses. If you are a professional, we offer birth worker and fitness trainer courses so you can learn from us and earn CEUs. Explore all of our courses on our website at mamastayfit.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow our podcast to be notified when we release new episodes, leave a review, and share with your friends. We release new episodes every Wednesday and new birth stories every Friday. This podcast is sponsored by Needed, a nutrition company focused on optimal nourishment for your perinatal journey. Use code MAMASTAYPOD for 20% off your first Needed order.